continuing series titled Supernatural. We are talking about moving beyond what is available to us in our human nature and into the supernatural that is available to us as the Holy Spirit lives in us and through us and empowers us. We've talked about things like the supernatural gift that God gave us in the presence of the Holy Spirit that he gave to the church from the very beginning, from its earliest days. And then we've talked about supernatural love. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about supernatural unity that happens when we each individually experience a supernatural humility. Then together, we can experience supernatural unity as the body of Christ. Last week, Pastor Colombo did a wonderful job of continuing our theme in our series as he talked about a supernatural mission and looking at those first verses in the, the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit empowered the witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utter ends of the earth, that each one of us has a Jerusalem, a neighborhood, a community, a Judea, our state or our region, uh, a Samaria where we kind of get outside of our region maybe, but still in those that speak and act like us, like the United States, and on out into the utter ends of the earth. And I loved his closing point that you can, you can go, you can pray, you can give. You can, you can go yourself. You can pray for those who do go, or you can give to empower the work that takes place. And so we're continuing that series, continuing that theme today as, as we talk about supernatural prayer. Now, two weeks ago, I talked about supernatural unity, and we looked at a prayer that Jesus prayed. In fact, one of the last prayers that's recorded in the Gospels is this prayer that we looked at in John 17 as he prayed for the unity of the church. That was our focus last, uh, last time I was here, two weeks ago. And today we're talking about supernatural prayer. We're talking about what does it look like when we move beyond what we are capable of in and of ourselves and into the realm of the supernatural. What do supernatural prayers Look like. And there's a beautiful example that is modeled by Jesus' spirit filled disciples just days after Pentecost, just days after the Spirit came upon them, just days after they received that, they experienced their first real trial. And we see as a result of that this model prayer, this supernatural prayer. It's in Acts chapter 4. You can start turning there if you want to. It's page 1697 if you have one of the hardcover pew Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. If you don't have one of those, you bring your own or you do something online, that's great. Uh, But we're going to be reading this in the New International Version. And just to kind of catch you up, uh, we had looked at at Acts chapter 2 and the Spirit coming at Pentecost and Peter stands up, delivers a sermon. We're told 3,000 people came to faith. 3,000, and it was probably men, so that was 3,000 families most likely. So the church got real big real fast. And then we read, you know, in Acts chapter 3 that Peter and John are on their way up to the temple and they see a beggar and they, they heal this lame, this crippled beggar. And that provides the context for another sermon. And so he's preaching. And that's kind of where we pick up here in the beginning of Acts chapter 4 as he's delivering that sermon or finishing that sermon. Some of the, the, 
the leaders, the religious leaders, the temple guard, the, uh, the Sadducees, and, and so forth, they come and they seize Peter and John and they put them in prison because it's late in the day and they didn't want to stay out late. So they put them in prison overnight and say, we'll have a little trial tomorrow. And we've got to put air quotes around this trial because it's, it's, it's more like an interrogation and a bullying that they do uh, with them. And you can read this story uh, in Acts chapter uh, 4. Um, but we're told that the church is now about 5,000, that people continue to come to faith and that the, the, the church is just growing like crazy. And that's probably why they were so concerned that, you know, if this had just stayed a little thing, a couple hundred people, no big deal. But the religious leaders, the religious establishment were starting to get pretty concerned at this point. And so they hold this mock trial and they demand to know and what name or what power did they do this miracle that nobody can deny because the guy's standing right there. And he had been lame and he had been crippled and now he's standing there in front of them. And so nobody can deny that the miracle took place. And they use that as an opportunity to say it is in the name of Jesus that we have done this miracle and there is no other name in heaven or on earth by which you must be saved. Famous passage, Acts chapter 4 verse 12. And so they command them to stop. And I love their response in verse 19 and 20. They say, you can decide whether it's right for us to listen to you or to listen to him, but we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. And what did Jesus say in Acts 1, verse 8? You will be my witnesses. Witnesses tell what they have seen and heard. And so the apostles are saying, you can tell us what you want us to do, but we're going to do what he wants us to do. We can't even help it. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. If this one thing would sweep through the church, sweep through Christianity, and Christians, modern day Christians, could not help but speak of what they have seen and heard, of what the Lord has done in their life, I think it would bring about a new revival. I think it would unleash a new revival if we could not help but speak of what we have seen and herds. We can be encouraged by their faith. That's kind of where we pick up the story here and we get some insight into this supernatural prayer. So I'm going to read verses 23 through 31 in Acts chapter 4, and then we'll back up and kind of walk through a few spots in, in particular. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So I want to back up and I want to look at, at verse 24 to start with. And if you have one of our new international versions, you know that the section heading here for these couple of paragraphs calls it the believer's prayer. And it's believer's with an S, then apostrophe. So collectively, this is the believer's collective 
prayer. And I think that's the first thing that we need to see is that we're told they raised their voices together in prayer. They raised their voices together in prayer. Warren Wearsby comments on this, saying, The greatest concentration of power in Jerusalem that day was the prayer meeting that followed the trial. Not all the Sadducees and all the Pharisees and the temple guard and all the religious leaders and all the government leaders. That wasn't the greatest concentration of power in Jerusalem on this day. It was the prayer meeting that followed the trial. Because there is power when we pray and pray together. That's why every Sunday we have a slide that lets you know about times each Sunday where we gather together for prayer. Anywhere from two to three or as many, I've seen as many as 20, 30 people gathering together at these prayer gatherings. And they happen here on Sunday mornings, some before service, some after service. And the simple goal there is to get people to gather together to pray together to the Lord because there is power when we pray together. And if you look at the words that are used, it says that they prayed together. It's literally meaning when that word together, uh, if you expand it in the original language, it's with one accord or with one mind that they gathered. They didn't just say the same words together, but they said it with one mind, one heart, one purpose. They were of one accord. They were praying together. There was supernatural unity as they prayed together. So we start to see the interweaving because the Holy Spirit doesn't just bring supernatural love at one point and supernatural unity at another point and supernatural that weaves these things together through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So they prayed together. They prayed together. And I would encourage you to find opportunities in your weekly rhythm of life to pray together. We do this daily as a family. We pray together and each person voices a prayer and we pray together. You can do this as a family. You can do this uh, in a Bible study or a small group that you're a part of. You can do this. You can pick up the phone, get a prayer partner and pray together on the phone. There's something powerful about hearing the words that somebody else is praying, praying the same things together, praying with one accord, one heart, one mind. The words become less important if the purpose and the one accord, the one heart, the one mind is guiding that prayer forward. And if you don't have any other time to pray with people, pick one of the Sunday options that's available and come and pray in our chapel together with other believers. The next thing, and and we really have to camp out a little bit on this next one, is the way that they address Christ. It's also in, or I'm sorry, the way that they address God, the way that they begin this prayer. It's also in verse 24, and they address this prayer as to the sovereign Lord. They begin the prayer with the word sovereign Lord, and in the Greek language, it's just one word. It's the word despota, Despota. How many of you have ever heard the, the phrase or the term a despot about a religious leader? Now, that's usually a negative thing in regards to a, a religious leader because they're human and unlimited power corrupts the human heart. And so most despots, most political despots, it's a bad thing. But it really just means absolute sovereignty, absolute jurisdiction over a thing over a region, over, in this case, the whole world, because he is the sovereign Lord. He is an authority figure who exercises complete jurisdiction over the whole universe. He is absolutely sovereign. And this phrase, this word, is only used a handful of times in the New Testament. And in each case, it's the relationship between a slave and a master. 
So a master has absolute jurisdiction over his slave or his slaves in this case. And so that's the picture that we have, this idea of absolute jurisdiction. Now, there is a more common phrase that is used to, to or be translated as Lord that we see over and over, over 700 times in the New Testament, and that's the Greek word kyrios, and it really just means ownership. It means that, that there's ownership. There's a Lord who has ownership of one. Despota is a stronger uh, it's absolute jurisdiction, absolute authority, and the exercise of that absolute authority. So that's the first thing we need to see. They address him as sovereign Lord, but they also throw in there something. Did you catch it? It was the lyric from the, the song that we sang this morning. You made the heavens and the earth, the, the seas and everything in them. They're referring to God as creator. They're saying you are sovereign Lord, but you are also the creator And I think it's really important that we learn to approach God not only as the sovereign Lord, but as the creator, the creator of all that is. It's his. He's sovereign over it, and he created it, and he created it good. They address him as creator, and it's important to acknowledge both, both his power and sovereignty, but also his goodness. You see, the creation that he created is good because the creator is good. Do you realize that? Every day, at the end of each day of creation, God saw what he had made and he said, it is good. And it's good because he created it and he's good. And then he gets to us on the sixth day. And what does he say? He says, it's very good. It's very good. And humanity, mankind is very good because it is made in the image of a very good creator. And so when we learn to approach God, both as sovereign and as creator in prayer, that solves the problem of pain and suffering in the world. And they've just had their first experience, their first challenge, their first issue, where they're like, it didn't go the way we thought it was going to go. We got hauled in before court. We spent a night in prison. We had a mock trial. We were told to stop. They threatened us. They, if you continue reading the book of Acts, you know it gets worse before it gets better. But when we approach God as sovereign and as our good creator, it resolves the issue of pain and suffering. Because the issue of pain and suffering, if not resolved, leads you to one of two false conclusions. The first conclusion would be, well, you know, in light of this pain and suffering, God is either all good but not all powerful, or he's all powerful but not all good. And to illustrate this, I was thinking of a time in my life where I said those words, in light of my experience, he can't be both. We had just lost our second child to miscarriage, and I was sitting there staring out my window at the wind moving the tree, and I remember saying, how can God be both powerful, all powerful, and all good? And I prayed a very selfish, very natural prayer in that moment. And fortunately, I had a pastor who came to visit us, and, and he said, I know you're hurting. I know your pain. And somehow in the midst of your hurting, in the midst of your pain, God is all-powerful. And he is all-good. And he is also all-wise. And he is timeless. And he is all of those things, Mark. And he loaned me some of his faith. And he loaned us some of his faith. And over time, we've learned to see the goodness And the sovereignty of God. Not that he caused the miscarriage. But that he has woven that story together with other stories. And we've been uniquely qualified to 
to minister to those who have experienced the same kind of loss, which is really difficult if you haven't experienced it to understand. And the same thing happens with each trial that we go through, each suffering, each experience of pain that we go through. It uniquely qualifies us to come alongside someone else. And that's where the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God weaves all of this together in a glorious tapestry. And so we must come to see, this is a strong conviction of mine, we must come to see the sovereignty of God as absolute jurisdiction. That's what the word means. Absolute jurisdiction rather than absolute control, that we're all puppets on a string and he's the micromanager of the universe and nothing happens that he doesn't cause. And I understand that this will challenge some of you. I know we have some people from a Reformed side of things that that elevates the sovereignty of God higher than human free will. We have some people that maybe come from more of the free will camp, and they elevate human free will, uh, not above the sovereignty of God, but, you know, there's a continuum here. And we'll talk about the continuum in just a minute. The point that I want to make is that you, you don't have to agree. In fact, even if you don't agree, we can still be friends, okay? There is a long continuum. My concern is at the extremes of either side. And this is the case throughout life. Whether you're talking about politics, whether you're talking about uh, a number of different philosophies, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man comes on a continuum. And I think most of the space in in the middle, 50, 60, 70%, is pretty safe ground. But if you get to either end, either extreme, you got to throw out a lot of scriptures, You've got to ignore a lot of scriptures on either end of the extreme. To illustrate this, we got these sections, right? we got these little side sections in the notch. And no offense if you're sitting in those side sections in the notch over there or the side sections in the notch over there. But that would be considered the extreme. And it's not the majority of the seats. They're not in the extremes. The majority of the seats are in these four sections in the middle. And so if we say this is our sovereignty of God camp and God is the micromanager of the universe and we're all just puppets on a string, then you can't be mad at me for holding a different opinion because I'm not in control of that, right? Okay, so you're over here. And then we've got our free will camp that's clear over here sitting in this notch. And they say, you know, it's all about human free will. Very little divine causation. It's humanity and humanity's way. I think those are the two dangerous extremes, And the majority of our congregation happens to sit in these two sections. And there's quite a few in that section that kind of lean in that direction and quite a few in this section that lean in that direction. Not that where you sit determines what you think about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man at all. But it helps illustrate that we can hold a number of different opinions and we don't have to have a a split over this. We can understand that God in his sovereignty... has allowed human free will because of his absolute commitment to love, which requires free will. And I hope you can see this, that God's sovereignty is preeminent, it's unlimited, it is overall. Within that sovereignty, inside of it, is this small thing called human free will, that God is sovereign and he is over all of these things. He exercises absolute jurisdiction over the affairs of mankind and over the affairs of the world. And in his sovereignty... He is allowed for human free will because of his commitment to love. He is absolutely committed to love. And love absolutely requires free will. Otherwise, it's not love. 
Because when we talked about supernatural love, we talked about the different types of love. And we're talking about agape love here. We're talking about a self-sacrificing surrender. That is an act of the will to bring your will under the will of another, to sacrifice yourself, to do this at your own expense. That cannot be a puppet on a string. That cannot be micromanaged. In fact, you could make the argument, why would there be a single command in Scripture if God is the micromanager of the universe? A command presupposes a choice. If I'm going to tell somebody to do something, they have a choice to follow the command or not follow the command. God has, within his absolute jurisdiction, within his absolute sovereignty, allowed for free will. And this does not diminish his sovereignty at all. In fact, it enhances it. And so we've talked about this, the, this idea of the Trinity several times in this series, and this image of the Trinity and how God is not, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son, but they are somehow all God at the same time. And the way that this works is that this is a community of divine love. This is a community of self-sacrificing surrender. The Father for the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit for the Father and the Son. The Son for the Father and the Spirit. And you see this interrelatedness. And this is the community of divine love that the Holy Spirit invites us into and empowers us to be a part of and empowers us as his church, as his beloved bride to unleash on the world around us. That we are meant to be within that community of divine love, unleashing that love on the world around us. That's the vision. That's the the big picture. This idea that God is love. You look at that image of the Trinity and you see it only works because God is love. He's the embodiment of of love, the self-sacrificing surrender of each member of the Trinity to the other two in order to accomplish the big picture vision of reconciling the entire world to himself, bringing the entire world into this community of divine love. So this does not diminish his sovereignty, this enhances it. Because free will exists under his sovereignty and authority, he can snap his fingers and free will's over. Because it's under his absolute jurisdiction. Are you tracking with me? He can end free will the snap of his fingers because he's absolutely sovereign. And scripture tells us that he will. That he will end free will at some point. And we don't know the exact hour or the date and the time, but when we read the end of the story, we know that the new heaven and the new earth is populated by those who have chosen of their own free will to worship God, to surrender to God, to join the community of divine love and unleash that love on the world. And that from that point forward, there will be no choice. The choice will be sealed. And those who have chosen will be with him forever. And he knows He knows from the beginning who will be in and who will be out, but he has allowed for free will within his absolute sovereignty so that we can choose, so that it is love and not something that is compelled from us and for us. And this doesn't diminish our need to pray. You see, if God is absolutely sovereign and nothing we do is of any of our own free will, then why would we pray? Why would we evangelize? Why would we participate in discipleship? Why would we choose to do anything for God? We would just say, it's all out of my hands. I'll just go watch TV. Right? 
but because we have a part to play, because he invites us into this community of divine love and wants that to be unleashed on the world through us, then we pray. Then we evangelize. Then we participate in discipleship. Then we sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. And we serve and we give and we participate in the divine will, which is to love and reconcile the world to himself. And so perhaps, while it does not diminish our need to pray, it might change our approach a little bit. It might change our approach to prayer, and we see an example of that as well. So if you look back at our, at our prayer, we see in the next couple of verses here, they quote David from Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points to the Messiah. It's a psalm that points to Christ and to what would happen in his life, that the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, that the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers together against the Lord, against his anointed one. And then they say, this is how that played out in our own midst. We just saw this happen in verse 27. They say, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire. It just happened. The prophecy was fulfilled, essentially. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They decided to do what God in his absolute sovereignty said should happen, would happen. It fulfilled the prophecy. You have the sovereignty of God. This all happened in the sovereignty of a good creator. And so it's a pretty sticky situation. They've been arrested once. They've been put in prison once. They've been commanded to stop. What do you think that they would pray for? You know, maybe protection? Anybody? Provision? Give us a way of escape? Maybe the death of their enemies, right? I mean, we're talking about James and John, the sons of thunder in the Gospels. They say, hey, Jesus, this is no big deal. Just call down fire from heaven and consume this place, right? That's the same James and John that are right here, the same John that got hauled off to prison. But they don't pray for that. They don't pray for protection. They don't pray for God to bless and direct. Look at what they pray for. Look at what they pray for. Let me find it. Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through, your, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see that? In light of God's sovereignty, in light of God's goodness, in light of the prophecies that have just been fulfilled in our own sight, Here's what we want you to do, God. Here's where the request comes in. Here's where the supplication comes in. And they pray for boldness. They pray for healing. They pray for miraculous signs and wonders. Their chief concern was not their own skin. Their chief concern was not their protection. Their chief concern was not the threats. They said, God, you consider their threats. We're not going to consider their threats. We want you to do something for us. We want you to empower us to speak your word with boldness. We want you to do miracles and healings and signs and wonders for your glory. They were more concerned with God's glory and kingdom expansion than they were for their own hide. This is a supernatural prayer, if ever there was one. They did not pray for themselves. They prayed for God's kingdom, for God's glory to go forth and to increase And then in verse 31, we get to see the result of that. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The prayer was answered immediately. The result was a second infilling of the Holy Spirit. A second 
tangible expression of the Holy Spirit coming down and filling, maybe refilling the 3,000, maybe filling the 2,000 that had joined their number, filling those who hadn't participated in the first filling. We don't know all the details of that, but we do know that the Spirit came upon them in a tangible manifestation. And we know from the first week that this supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit was there to teach them. It was there to remind them. It was there to empower them to do God's will in God's way. It was there to empower the kingdom of God to move forward forcefully. And so we see the answer to their prayer immediately. And as I tried to think of a way to summarize this whole passage, to make our bottom line a a summary statement of of what we see in this supernatural prayer, here's what I came up with, and it's a little mechanical, but, but very, very true. Supernatural prayer trusts God's sovereignty and His goodness and seeks to advance His glory. Supernatural prayer trusts in God's sovereignty and His goodness. Those two get united and brought together. And that supernatural prayer seeks to advance his purpose in the world. It seeks to advance his glory in the world. Supernatural prayer is always more focused on God and his agenda than our own comfort, safety, and security. And I'm not saying you don't ever pray for your comfort, your safety, your security. But I, and, and maybe they even did after they got done praying for the big ticket items that they needed, which was boldness, to speak the word of God, miracles, signs, and wonders for God's glory to move forward. That was the first thing on their list. And if we approach God in that manner, and we approach God with that supernatural power that desires his will to be done in us and through us, I believe we will find a gravity and a fruitfulness to our prayer that we might be missing out on or not experiencing. And during the Stand series, I shared this uh, as we looked at one of Daniel's prayers, I said that, that our approach needs to shift away from merely trying to get God to do what we want him to do and towards getting ourselves to do what God wants to do. And I have been reflecting on that and chewing on that. It's one of those things that you kind of write in a sermon and you say in a sermon and then afterwards people say, you know when you said that, that was a really big, big idea. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of it that way before. And I have been praying a prayer that acknowledges what's on the screen right now, that my approach to prayer must shift away from merely trying to get God to do what I want him to do and towards getting me to desire and do what he wants. It's not about me and what I want. It's about him and what he wants. And supernatural prayer, supernatural prayer trusts God's sovereignty and his goodness and seeks to advance his glory. May we all lean into and grow in the grace of praying supernatural prayers and the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Would you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful story that gives us insight into how the first believers gathered together in your name and prayed a supernatural prayer. That first and foremost, between, before anything else, they acknowledged your sovereignty and your goodness. They adored you. They worshipped you. They professed who you are. And then, 
they sought to see your glory expand. We thank you for that, Lord, for that example. Help us. Help us to change the way we pray if this isn't already a part of it. Help us to, to change the things that we desire, that, that our needs and our wants would be secondary to your kingdom expanding in this world, in us, in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own minds, and through us as we participate with your Holy Spirit, as we participate with the community of divine love that you have called us to be a part of. May it start with us. And may it go forth as we pray together in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.